This episode is sponsored by Meta. Check out their third annual sustainability report that just launched. It shares progress towards Meta's goal of achieving net zero emissions across their value chain in 2030. For more information, please visit sustainability.fb.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, unlearning chemistry in a circular world. Amazon drives a new generation of electric truck. The voices you missed at Verge Electrify. And you're the first sustainability hire. Now what? We're starting from scratch this week on 350. It's July 29th, 2022, the last business day of this year's seventh month. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, nursing a mint julep on a summer day is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Are you suggesting that I drink during the <laughs> podcast recording? <laughs> You're not a day drinker? Okay. I am well. not a day drinker. I don't even know what's in a mint julep. What is in a mint julep? <laughs> oh, you know, it's, I don't know. It's rum, I think, and mint and okay. julep. Some part, you know. <laughs> Two parts julep okay, to one part rum. I don't know, something like note that. Note to uh, listeners, tell us what's in a mint julep. Send us a note. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> you can't find that online anywhere. That's just no, impossible. to. No, it's no. unknowable, basically. I'm yeah, pretty I, good, I, I don't, I'm I don't pretty think good. I've, I don't think yeah. I've ever had a mint julep. But yeah, well, good. Yeah, it's, uh, I, And I hope, you, I hope the same for you. It's um, been pretty darn hot in the Northeast in New Jersey. Yeah, and, well, uh, you, you don't want to know how... It's been here, but I'll tell you anyway, it's been 70 degrees every day and will be for the next week or maybe more. But, you know, um, uh, you probably no doubt uh, turning on the AC a bunch this week. Mm -hmm. And uh, that brings us to the event we had this week, Verge Electrify. How is that for a transition? (laughs) Excellent. I think it's a good transition. Yeah. So we did this uh, two-day virtual event uh, about basically two words, Electrify Everything. Uh, big, huge, massive kudos to Sarah Golden, our uh, energy analyst, uh, who put it all together and hosted it. And um, I have to say, we're, we're, these virtual events, they're, they're basically like, well, at least the, the plenary sessions are like TV shows. I mean, we it, it's it's very well produced. And her opening is just brilliant. And all I, ha- all I can tell you is that it, it, one word or two words, the Jetsons. <laughs> Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your parents. But um, the Jetsons were was a, was an amazing TV show in the '60s, and again revived in I think the '80s about a space age family, and it, it has a very special meaning here. But uh, what, what, what did you think of this week, Heather? Okay. Well, so yeah, so Sarah is is mistress of costume changes, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, no good, gr- great, great emceeing and fun. I mean, you know what I mean. 
we are all weary of online events. This was not anything that was wearying. You know what I'm saying? Like there was so much great entertainment value and so much depth of content. We had some amazing speakers, Jigger Shaw, Saul Griffith, Patty Poppy, um, the list goes on. My, you know, it just, the, the keynote sessions were really inspiring and um, lots of great in-depth thinking about this whole electrification yeah. movement. We're going to show uh, showcase some highlights a little later, but it's just a, a terrific conference. Um, and uh, one, we really need to charge up, right? We need to charge up this electrification movement. As it were. And uh, we have uh, those uh, the, the main stage sessions, and I think all the sessions available online for on-demand viewing. And as Heather said, we'll be playing uh, some excerpts from the main stage stuff uh, in uh, just a few minutes. But before that, the Week in Review. I'll get us started this week, Joel, with a piece that Vartan Bedalian did, our transportation analyst. He had uh, the opportunity to go and uh, participate in the launch of the Rivian Electric vans that uh, Amazon has officially bought. They they uh, put placed an order for like 100,000 of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, and this is the first, this is the first commercially available um, versions of the vans. Um, there was a big launch on actually my birthday last week, uh, and and, and uh, Barton was able to go, and he provided some perspective on the launch and, and what it went into this this particular vehicle. I I, I was amazed by um, this all happened by the way in Chicago in, in an Amazon warehouse facility. There was an incredible amount of collaboration on the design of this. I mean, this thing was designed for Amazon from end to end from tire to you know to door cargo door and i think that um that really stands out there which uh, vartan provides some some of the things you know some of his sort of highlights if you will he, he had a chance to look at the customizations but like i mean it's things that are very unique such as for example the bulkhead door automatically opens and closes depending on whether the vehicle is parked or in motion. How many times have you seen one of these vans start to like pull away and the doors are still open? Well, this thing like automatically closes. Um, there's software that that helps with the routing and navigation. I mean, that's that's pretty standard, I think, in, in, in many of these vehicles that are coming onto the road, but just an extraordinary collaboration between these two companies to pull together the design for this thing. So, I mean, it, this is one of those, um, I think, launches that we're going to be talking about in years to come. They're going to be actually putting these vehicles or the early ones on the road in baltimore chicago nashville phoenix san diego and st louis all over the country i think that's also really interesting like nashville tennessee um you know great place to, to test an ev right so um yeah what, what was your impression joel well first of all a belated happy birthday i meant to do this <laughs> on the last week's show and 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 i forgot um, and so, uh, uh, happy 39, uh, well, <laughs> 39, <laughs> the, how many times? Yeah. Yeah, anyway. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> your, your 39th birthday is, is not quite old enough to vote, but you know, we get on its way. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, just, first of all, it's astounding, you know, just to, you know, to be able to say, you know, well, can I put you in one of these? Yeah, I'll take a hundred thousand of them, um, yeah. <laughs> is, 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 is pretty amazing. Um. Yeah, no, this is, I guess the question is, 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 
that seems to be enough. By the way, it's a hundred thousand by twenty thirty. So just right. you know, it's Not eight right years. Away. So that's yeah. a mm-hmm. that's twelve thousand a year. That's still pretty good. Thousand a month. Um, uh, the question is: Is this enough to really uh, jumpstart the market? And is this a, a vehicle or, or a close version of it? Will be? Will this be available to Amazon's competitors and and non competitors, just other companies? Um, do, do you happen to know whether that's uh, this is just a unique to uh, to Jeff Bezos' company, or what's going to happen? Well, this particular design is, I mean, Rivian has other vehicles on the road. I've seen some of them here in New Jersey, some of their pickup trucks. So they do have other you know, models, but clearly Amazon is one of their big backers. And it's, you know, it's an example of this whole um, procurement signal discussion that we've been having just off and on on this podcast for, for months now, and probably years, actually. But the ability of a large organization to create demand for something like this. So getting mm-hmm. the first few on the road, getting the, the costs into a place where maybe they can make a, a different model for other companies. So I, I don't think that's off the table, but clearly, you know, they know where their money's coming from on these. So they're going to, you know, focus on that. So I, and I, you know what, what I don't know also is, and I'm not sure if it's, it could be buried somewhere in the story. I'm not going to search for it right this second but how how many fleet uh, vehicles does have it if it's in its fleet in its entirety you know is this 10 percent of the fleet is this you know how is you know what part part of the fleet is being turned over and and how quick yeah it's a billion vehicles based on my neighborhood but um (laughs) yeah that's uh well yeah those kind i mean this is the collaboration part i think is really the interesting piece here and and how these two companies came together to create this uh obviously a bespoke vehicle for Amazon, but um, ultimately uh, moving the whole thing forward. It takes great partnerships and uh, and great chemistry. And that brings us to our second story we want to talk about, chemistry, then from our uh, circularity and senior analyst, um, John Schmea, who himself is a bench chemist, is trained that way. It's so great to have technical people uh, leading some of our events now. That's such a, um, I really appreciate his vision and, and, and experience and insights. But he really talks about the fact that, you know, one of the challenges of moving to green chemistry is that it's not taught to chemists. Duh. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that that's that's one of, the, one of the big challenges. And this is something I've heard... Um, John Warner, who who uh, spoke at our circularity event, uh, spoken at a number of our events, uh, and along with uh, Paul Anastas, uh, are, are generally seen as the fathers of green chemistry. They they literally wrote the book on it, the textbook that's uh, uh, now widely used in in chemistry courses. Um, and John Warner will be the first to tell you that you know we're not teaching this stuff. You don't come out of chemistry school with a graduate or any kind of degree that teaches you about green chemistry and the principles. There's 12 principles um, that are generally ascribed to uh, green chemistry. And and there's a whole process there. And what I also like about it is, is that it's not just about the chemist. It's about the product designer. It's about the end user. Uh, how do you, what's everybody's role in, in, in asking questions and in providing input. And uh, again, this is another collaborative partnership kind of thing, although it's probably less a lot less formal. 
But I, I really love the sensibility here. Um, it's called unlearning what we know about chemistry in order, I guess, to use better chemistry. Uh, what was your takeaway here, Heather? There were two big reactions I had. Ha, ha, ha. Um, I, oh. <laughs> see what I did there? Amazing. You did, yeah. I did. You even uh, had to explain it. It was so subtly uh, <laughs> delicious there. But go, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, wow. Sorry. The, two, two, two things that really leapt out for me. One is um, the fact that most chemists aren't trained or required to learn toxology. I was just like, what? <laughs> you're not you don't have you're not required to think about how toxic it is that you're you know like what impact this thing might have on people or human you know or, or the environment or anything so that 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 sort of was like one of those wow i didn't know that and then that is pretty amazing just yeah. to think about they don't talk about toxicology in in chemistry yeah. All right and then the other thing that i re- really struck st- stuck with me and i thought as sort of a potential catalyst for the future was um, John's comment as chemists, we know all of these chemical reactions are theoretically reversible. And I thought, whoa, yes. Um, and that's like where some of the innovation could lie in in this um, in the in the material science that we need to move forward. I'm particularly fascinated by this area right now. It's like one of these uh, the the deeper I try to step into these topics, I get more and more excited about. The work that's going on, and there's some really terrific companies out there um, trying to push the envelope that we probably don't write about nearly as much as we should. And I, this is just one of those stories that reminds me that there's so much um, that we really should be focusing on in the materials world that we aren't, and that we should. So, so, so this reversible piece is 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 it's about. So you, you put some chemicals together, there's a reaction and there are some catalytic or other kind of reaction. And um, and then something else comes out of that that is presumably the, the, the chemical or, or material that you want to use. And you and reversing that, that's really interesting because if you if we're going to create circularity, uh, you know, going, uh, keeping those molecules in play and going from molecule back to molecule at the end of its productive life, we need to undo chemistry just as much as we can. And uh, that's just that feels like a radical f- statement that all of these chemical reactions are theoretically reversible. It, it really feels radical. But let's move over to maybe something slightly less radical, a piece uh, by Olivia Morton, who's a, a sustainability specialist at Golden State Foods. And this is part of our higher, H-I-R-E, higher learning series that's uh, looking at the job market and, and lessons learned and how do you get the job and what do you do in the job. This one's called, So You're the First Sustainability Hire, Now What? And and Olivia offers uh, some, you know, week one, month one, month two, month three, year one advice, and then even some future actions to consider you know, for those of us who are grizzled old folks, it's like, well, duh. But this is something I think that anybody in in a sustainability role will look at this and say, that's really helpful because it's so overwhelming. I mean, sustainability is by nature pretty much about everything in business, at least, and, and, and in the, also in the world. But in business, it's about every aspect of business, every size, sector, geography, every business function. And and it can be overwhelming. And this was, I thought, some really good advice. Uh, you know, get to know your colleagues and and understand the 
uh, your elevator pitch and how you talk with them and some of the language that's being used and then doing some deeper dive analyses and and understanding some of the how the companies already the frameworks such as you know GRI, SASB, TCFD, and others that are being used. It's just really basic but really important advice. Yeah, I thought there was just some really good actionable suggestions here. This list of questions you should be asking colleagues. Um, you know, for example, is there an appetite for the implementation of sustainability software? Um, how are you communicating with the IT department? Um, who's collecting your utility data information? That that those those things happen in month three. Those questions. But I thought that she did a really nice job of laying this out for particularly a, a company that that's maybe in a small or mid-sized company that doesn't have a whole lot of resources that needs to start somewhere. And I, I, I loved it. I thought this is a great piece for anyone who's brand new to their role in a, you know, obviously in a brand new company um, that hasn't really thought about this. And I loved also this this education materials suggestion, the future in her, under her future actions develop internal education materials. I thought, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just, uh, again, one of those that you, you assume that's happening, but it probably doesn't always happen. And so um, why not? And that that's the only way you're going to help build the audience within your company, especially if you're a team of one. So uh, yeah, great, great, um, really specific tips. Even if you get one thing out of this, I think it's worth a read. It's, um, I, I do think, to your point also, we've been following this for a while. It's not just for the, the newbies. There might be something in here that jars you as a as a, someone who's more seasoned, um, something that you might want to do a little bit differently. This spring, the WSLA alumni group recognized 11 women at the forefront of the sustainability profession. These leaders have made a difference by advancing new technologies or strategies, by overcoming personal and professional obstacles, and by committing to mentoring other women. They join more than 85 women who have been honored since 2014. I am thrilled to introduce some of the latest inductees here on GreenBiz 350. This week, I am joined by Bess Winston, founder and owner of the Winston Agency, a strategic advocacy and communications firm in Washington, D.C. Bess, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thank you, Heather. What a pleasure to be here. I have been so inspired by the stories here on the podcast, and I wanted to ask you what inspired you to focus on a career related to environmental sustainability and ESG? Well, Heather, my work in sustainability communications began in the mid-2000s when the PR agency I was working for uh, began supporting the Dow Chemical Company and its ambitions around sustainability. Now, as someone who had worked in progressive communications, this raised a few eyebrows among some of my peers. But um, I saw the tremendous resources, the, the innovation, and really the science that came from Dow and the potential of what happens when the private sector really leans in with some muscle on issues like climate, sustainable water systems. Um, and I thought, well, who better than me, who's worked in government and worked with NGOs to start connecting the dots? Um, and I've done it ever since. So you mentioned you work in government. Could you, what, where, where was that? So I worked in the U.S. Congress or a member of Congress from Illinois, one of the first members who was from an urban district um, who worked on brownfield issues. 
And that was really my first taste of sustainability and the importance of social justice when it comes to sustainability. I think policy experience is so important, I think, for everyone who's in sustainability, especially now. It's incredible what's going on. And I think it's really important to have that background. So kudos to you. What do you think has been or what do you believe has been your most important factor in your success? Honestly, Heather, it is exactly what you just said. I think that you have to be a little bit of a unicorn if you're going to do sustainability communications. So what I mean by that is you have to have the technical and policy knowledge so that you're credible with the real experts in the field. But you also have to be grounded in the functional skill sets of communications and public relations so that you can be a strong storyteller. And I think I've been able to really hone my expertise and my my skill sets in, in all of those areas. And that's what's made a difference for me. And that's how I've been able to differentiate myself uh, in this space. What has been your most successful leadership habit or strategy? I really believe that leadership can't be shy. And so um, I'm, a, I'm a very curious person. I've, I've learned over the years to ask questions and to really probe until I understand a concept or an idea. And I think in the sustainability space, that's super important because it's complicated. Um, you know, a lot of women, I think, especially feel like asking questions is a sign of vulnerability. But what I've learned actually is if you, if you ask questions, in fact, you're showing your smarts and your knowledge, and um, it's a little bit of an opportunity, frankly, to drive the conversation. So uh, as a leader, I say, uh, don't be shy and, um, you know, ask questions that you need to ask. So I love that answer. How has mentoring the next generation of leadership changed your own career tra trajectory or outlook? Well, um, I think the last couple of years have been very difficult politically and socially all over the world, but I think in particular in the United States and COVID on top of that. So I've watched really carefully the next generation, um, and, I, and I have the pleasure of working with them every day at our firm. And it, honestly, it's encouraged me. It's, it's um, what I've seen from them has allowed me to let go a little bit, to feel like I don't have to be compelled to lead all the time. And as I'm sure you can relate, I mean, you know, my generation, you know, we're exhausted and we are ready to pass the baton. So um, working side by side with this next generation, I see that they get it. I, I believe in them. I think they're so thoughtful and they're compassionate and they're smart. And I just can't wait to see what they do. What advice would you give to anyone of any age pursuing a career in corporate sustainability? In this space in particular, you really have to be relentlessly curious. And you have to be curious about the systems that hold our world together, the social systems, the political systems, the ecosystems. And you have to understand and see how they are all interconnected and where they're interconnected. If you pay attention to that, 
um, in, and you're in the sustainability space, you will find the answers because they are there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bess. Thank you, Heather. You just heard from Bess Winston, founder and owner of the Winston Agency, a strategic advocacy and communications firm in Washington, D.C. As we said earlier, uh, Heather, has she does so well with every event, has lined up some clips from the main stage of Verge Electrify this week. Uh, Heather, what do you got? Okay, we've got four highlights from the conference this week. We're going to start with Patty Poppy, the CEO of PG&E, and she talks about the role of EVs, electric vehicles, in balancing the grid and how PG&E makes the case, the business case for electrification. One of the things that people ask me all the time about electric vehicles is, uh, is the grid ready? And will we have enough energy? And I think there's some important local questions to be answered about that, making sure we have the transformer and the, uh, the circuits prepared for density of electric vehicles. But one of the things people don't realize is that those electric vehicles can serve as both a source of energy as much as a draw on energy. Today in my service area in, in Northern and Central California, we have 6,600 megawatts of capacity driving around our roads today. People might not know what 6,600 megawatts is, but it is three Diablo Canyon power plants of capacity today, not in the future, today, driving around our roads. And if we can enable those vehicles to provide a, a power back to the grid on those peak times, I see those vehicles then as a, a grid resource. So customers who might otherwise not be able to afford an electric vehicle, perhaps we incentivize that electric vehicle because it's really a mini power plant. And when that customer agrees to enable that vehicle to dispatch to the grid, five days a year, they get access to electric transportation that cleans their air, allows them to have uh, um, the participation in the electrification movement, lower their household energy expense. I see it as a pathway to equitable, clean energy. I would say that PG&E in particular is uniquely positioned because we're a dual fuel utility. We both deliver natural gas and electricity and our service areas overlap almost 100%. That gives us sort of a more agnostic point of view about how people want their energy delivered. I feel um, grateful that we get to be very much customer obsessed on how customers want energy, we can deliver it. And we've already seen many cases. In fact, we have 84 homes that we have already transitioned from gas to electricity. And we do those in very specific cases. And in fact, there was a case in, in uh, uh, Monterey where there was a, a gas project planned. And when we looked at the gas project, which was gonna cost about $1.2 million to replace the service in the main to one home, we realized that if we just electrified that home, it would cost dramatically less. So we saved a million dollars by not replacing the main in the service and instead electrifying that home. And so more and more, we have an integrated energy system as a strategy for PG&E, not a gas strategy, not an electric strategy, but an energy system strategy. And we're uniquely positioned then to really find the best, cleanest, most reliable, most resilient, lowest cost solution for customers and not have to feel compelled uh, to hang on and protect our business model. 
Next up is Martin Heimrich, the senator from New Mexico who graced our main stage. And he addresses electrification as a strategy for cutting off revenue from autocratic regimes. If you will, electrification for peace. Until we can wean ourselves from fossil fuels like oil and fossil gas, Americans and our allies will remain beholden to autocrats in petrostates like Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. We need to electrify our climate, and we need to electrify for peace. During World War II, Americans on the home front stood up to tyrants like Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini by planting victory gardens and going to work in the factories that built the arsenal for democracy. In our generation's fight against tyranny, we can each play a role in cutting off the revenue streams that are keeping these malign regimes in business. In that spirit, I'm here today to encourage you and your companies to do your part. I hope that you're learning more in this conference about why electrification is the smart choice, not just for our planet, but for your bottom line. And I'm confident that private sector companies stand to achieve major savings and major reductions in your emissions by electrifying your commercial buildings and transportation fleets. You can also pair the electrification of your machines with cleaner power generation, either through your own on-site installations and infrastructure or through power purchase agreements or clean energy utility programs. Because electric machines are much more efficient and less costly to operate, each one that you install will provide a substantial and long-term return on your investment. I would encourage all of you to look into how your businesses can swiftly deploy electrification solutions in your operations. These concrete solutions are what will help you achieve the climate pledges and net zero goals that your consumers, your shareholders, and increasingly your employees are demanding. The electrification of our homes and businesses is a once in a generation opportunity to make our lives healthier, more comfortable, and more affordable. I hope that you'll join me on this leading edge and this exciting transition. Thank you. We had Jigger Shaw, director of the Loans Program Office for the Department of Energy as well on the main stage. And here he talks about the concept of a green premium and why there really actually isn't a green premium. There's, there's sort of a myth of that uh, with that concept. Oftentimes we end up lacking context in you know, how we're thinking about this. So when you think about the large corporations, for instance, who put money into the frontier effort for um, uh, buying direct air capture credits or the First Movers Coalition effort, right? The amount of money that they're spending on this is not 1% or 2%, it's like 0.1%, right? And so the impact on their procurement costs is negligible to zero, mm -hmm. right? But even at negligible to zero, it still actually sends enough signal to get to $100 billion, right? And so, so the question becomes how fast and how much and, you know, and how soon, right? So, like, so when you think about what the premium is for green steel, for instance, right? It might be 30% more expensive initially for that first plant, but it's 1% of what they're buying, mm -hmm. right? And then that second plant may be 20% premium. 
and then the third one is a 10% premium. Remember, this is not a green premium. Like, that doesn't exist. It's a technology premium. Mm -hmm. All things are expensive when you do it first, right? Whether it's an electric car or whether it's a computer, right? So all technologies have a premium associated with it. And, uh, and as you get to higher and higher levels of procurement, that premium goes practically to zero. And then oftentimes it flips. And then now this technology is cheaper than the high carbon version of that product. And you see that with solar and wind and lithium ion yeah. batteries, et cetera. So the context really matters. And there are some people who want to be in this framework. And that's what the First Movers Coalition, I think, represents. And there's others who say, no, we're going to be in the third round. Right? We don't want to be in the first two rounds of procurement. We want to be in the third round of procurement when the premium is only a few percentage points or we're already you know, getting to a savings. Right? But when you think about how this works, it sort of flips on itself. So people who did corporate uh, power purchase agreements right, with virtual uh, contracts were contracts for differences. Right? So they signed contracts for solar and wind at a fixed price. Let's call it $24 a megawatt hour. And at the time, power was trading at $19 a megawatt hour. So they were paying a premium of $5 a megawatt hour. Today, power is trading at $35 a megawatt hour. Now they're paying $10 cheaper uh, because they're fixed, right? So you can call it a premium. You can call it a discount. But in fact, what it is is a hedge, mm -hmm. right, against volatility in the future. And so what percentage of your procurement do you want that hedge for? Yeah. And you know, it probably is fine to put a hedge on 5%, 10% of your procurement. So I feel like we get in trouble by calling things green premium when that's not what it is. And finally, we're going to end this little segment with uh, Saul Griffith, the founder of Rewiring America and the founder and principal of Other Lab. And he talks about how electrification makes communities inflation proof. Electrification cost is inevitably coming down for a long time to come. You can see in history, let's look at red dye, let's look at insulin, let's look at video, let's look at cameras, corn, nails, coal, car tires. Once the transition starts to happen within 25 years, it accelerates and is nearly done. And you get 100% penetration of the new incumbent. This is the revolution we are seeing. It's already happening. Governments can speed it up, but they can't really slow it down. So here, let's get serious. Um, we got to say, how are we doing against our climate goals? This is the one and a half degree curve of, uh, that we'd have to hit if we wanted to do no negative emissions. That's where the more than 50% target by 2030 in emissions reductions comes from. Two degrees get, buys us a, a less good climate, but a little more time. But you can see here, if we project forward the rate of those renewables being deployed along with some nuclear, we can be all electric by 2040 or 2050 and zero emission. We may not be as fucked as you think. So that's one piece of the good news story. The, the industry is now on target to hit our climate goals uh, as long as we keep the, the foot to the floor. And you can only expect international governments to get more ambitious in their commitments, automotive companies to get more ambitious in their commitments as time goes on. But let's turn not from the macroeconomic story, which I think is good, but let me talk about the underlying microeconomics, which I think is the most compelling reason of all to do this. Here's your house, here's your cars, and this is what we're all going to be doing. We're going to be electrifying because the economics just makes sense for your house. We're going to put solar on the roof, then we're going to follow it with a battery, we'll electrify the load center or the fuse box will electrify the kitchen, the water heater, the heating, the first car, the second car. And that means your household will go from a picture like this, where today 
every month you send a check to the electricity company that money leaves your house it leaves your suburb then you also buy gasoline every week that's money that leaves your house leaves your suburb doesn't create very many jobs where you live if any at all you buy natural gas to heat your home that also that's money that leaves your house leaves your zip code probably leaves your state not really benefiting your house at all let's fast forward to the future here's your same house now you have solar on the roof it's receiving that free sunshine you had to invest in it yes You'll only need to buy a small amount of electricity from the grid. That'll still have to happen just to make sure it works all year round and all day long. But the money you've invested in your rooftop solar and the electrification is going to be savings returned to your household. In the US, those savings by 2030 could be as easily be as two to four thousand dollars per year per household that's a good story for your house but remember your house lives in a community you live in a community electricity is literally the thing that connects us physically connects every household uh everything we do as a community in 2022 your community is spending if you know if you think of a community or a suburb as about a thousand households uh they're spending about $20 million a year on fossil fuels, and that's, it. that's money on a one-way ticket outside of your community. If we rather invest in your community, invest in the electrification of your community, by 2032, the majority of that $20 million could be returning in a virtuous circle back in your community. And of course, that means local savings, that's gonna buy new classrooms, that's gonna buy new swimming pools, that's gonna pave the roads, and it's gonna create a huge number of jobs. The virtuous circle of electrification is that it works locally and improves every community. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters, all seven of them. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. You can hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Meta. Check out their third annual sustainability report that just launched. It shares progress towards their net zero 2030 goal and how they're working with supply chain and platform partners to create a better reality. For more information, please visit sustainability.fb.com.